Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Probably, uh, I'm going to tell you a story. You've probably heard this story before. It's about the five blind men who uh, come upon an elephant in the jungle as they're wandering about. And as they do, one of these wise men um, runs into the trunk and he puts his hands on it because, of course, he's blind and that's how he sees and um, determines that the elephant must be very much like this kind of prehensile hose and begins to formulate his opinion of elephants on that. Another runs smack dab into one of the legs, these massive things which feel to him very much like a a tree trunk. And so he concludes that an elephant must be very much like a tree trunk and begins to formulate his opinions of elephant based upon his experience. The third manages to grab hold of the tail and concludes that this elephant thing must be something like a rope of some kind. And continues to formulate his opinions on elephants accordingly. The fourth runs smack dab into his rib cage and feels as far as he can feel with his hands, determining that elephant must be something like a large leather covered wall and continues to formulate his opinions about elephant. The last brushes up against the elephant's ear, which reminds him very much of the leaves they brush through as they wander through the gen- uh, wander through the Indian jungles. And so he concludes that elephant must be something like those leaves. And so after their encounter with the elephant, they wander back into the um, jungle and get into quite an argument about what an elephant actually is. And it's right at this point in time that the Eastern mystic and their Western disciples will kind of add the moral to the story and say something like, and that's kind of like God. Everybody's experience of God is very different. And we all bring our little snippet to the truth, of the truth to the table, and we kind of figure it out, and we just learn to coexist there. Sorry, my body language gave away how absurd that conclusion actually is. I mean, that is just ridiculous, both in its conclusion and in the moral teaching that rises out of it. Because no matter how those six Indian blind men stitch together their intellectual conclusions about elephant based on their individual experience, the best elephant that they could ever construct is something like a Frankenstein elephant. It would not be an elephant at all. Because an elephant is none of those things. And how much more ridiculous then to build an extended philosophy of life on this absurd premise from the beginning. And yet we find ourselves in a place more often than not that we are like those five Indian blind wise men. We come upon little snippets of God's truth and we conclude that by virtue of kind of doing a deep dive on that little snippet. We've somehow cracked the code about God, and now we have the whole thing figured out. And it seems to be that that's exactly what Jesus is confronting 
in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly as he gets to this part of the sermon. Now, I get it. I get it. It's necessary for us to do the deep dives. It's really important because these are the words of God. These are not mere elephants that we stumble into or stumble upon in jungles. These are the words of God. And so it really is valuable, really is important for us to spend time thinking deeply, thinking clearly about the individual components of the Scriptures, as we've done over the past several weeks with the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, we've had four different people. I'm the fourth one. Talking about five, so far, little illustrations that Jesus has provided in this larger three-chapter Sermon on the Mount. And we're right at the place where we're at risk of stumbling as the Indian wise men did. We're right at that place where we can miss the bigger picture in the minutiae of the smaller illustrations. And so Jesus, in the passage that was read, kind of wisely steps back because the great, um, the great safeguard against that very human tendency of missing the forest for the trees, missing the elephant for the parts, the great safeguard against that is continually stepping back and reminding ourselves of the big picture. And so in the passage we read today, Jesus is evidently bringing this larger point that he's been making in all of chapter 5 to a conclusion. He's used these six form, or these, these same formula six times. You have heard that it was said or some variant of that. But I say unto you. And he's done that six times now in chapter 5 in an attempt to help illustrate his bigger point. And of course, the bigger point ends with this climactic, therefore, you be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. So that's where we find ourselves today at this point in the Sermon on the Mount. What I'd like to do is I'd like to try to step back as Jesus does and look at his big point by answering three questions. Why does Jesus say what he says here, number one? Number two, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us? And number three, how do we do what Jesus commands? Because we dare not miss that point. Jesus is not just contributing to the moral theory of the universe here. He's not just entering into some esoteric philosophic discussion on the nature of good and evil. You come to the end of the sermon, and it's extremely clear that he expects every person sitting on the side of that hill listening to this sermon to walk away and do something with it. So this morning, it's incumbent upon us not just to understand what he's saying in the big picture and minutia picture, but also to carry with us a commitment to, as we understand it, do it. So, let's pray and ask for help to that end. Our Father in heaven, we are so much more like the scribes and Pharisees who are the antagonists in this sermon so far than we are like Jesus. We have ears that are hard of hearing, eyes that are mostly blind, and hearts that fluctuate between flesh and stone. And we're just not sure so many times what to do. We need your help. We need your help. We're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for this sermon because in this sermon, your Son, our Lord, is providing us with the help we need. But we need help beyond that. We need you to help us here. 
where we can't. We need you to help us see what we don't. We need you to help us understand and give us that heart of willing obedience. So I pray for that this morning. I pray that what I say might be helpful even more, that it might be absolutely in step with what Jesus is saying here. We ask this in his name. Amen. So question number one, why does Jesus say what he says here? And of course, we need to figure out what we mean by here. If the whole sermon, all three chapters, is kind of a map from here where he starts to there where he ends, then where in that journey from chapter 5, verse 2, to chapter 7, verse 30 or 40, whatever it is, where are we in that whole big picture? So just step back with me a little bit. We started this series out. Um, we started off with this kind of celebration of these blessed ones and who they are in the world. Jesus looked out in the crowd of people who had gathered, who had decided that whatever else they needed to do in life, I have got to get to Jesus. I have got to be where he is. Somehow, things will start to make sense there. And Jesus acknowledges that. He said, blessed are you. Several times, blessed are you, blessed are you. And then he goes a step farther. He says, not only blessed are you, but you are the salt of the earth. You, right out there, you are the light of the world. And he introduces this tension in which these people sitting on this hill and we, by extension from those people, will experience both harshness and able to be helpful in a world like this. We'll be persecuted, we'll be overlooked, we'll be misunderstood, we'll be sad. But at the same time, we'll be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And having introduced the sermon with that celebration, he launches into a very necessary second step of clarifying what he's here to do. He says in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish or destroy the law and the prophets. No, no, no. I've not come to abolish and destroy, but to fulfill. I tell you the truth, as surely as heaven and earth will not pass away, not one jot, not one tittle of the law and the prophets will pass until everything is fulfilled. Therefore, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so shall be least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches others to do them shall be great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness greatly exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not even enter into the kingdom of heaven. And having set that up, he launches into what we've already introduced as these six uh, illustrations of what he's trying to say. In order to help us see his point in this whole chapter, he launches into six escalating illustrations explaining how the widely held yet subpar ideas of righteousness promoted by the scribes and Pharisees actually relax the commandments of God and miss the entire point of what righteousness is. And in doing so, he makes clear that we shall not become who he has called us to be if we only achieve that beggarly level of righteousness attained by the scribes and Pharisees. Worse, we shall not even enter the kingdom of heaven if our righteousness does not exceed the currently popular version displayed by the scribes and Pharisees. So if this exceeding or perfect righteousness is Jesus' larger point in chapter 5, the elephant, if you will, let's just 
quickly review the parts that we've run into so far and, and put them in context. He starts off after setting this stage by saying, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, whoever, mur or whoever is angry with his brother without cause is in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, you fool, shall be in danger of the Sanhedrin. And whoever dismisses his brother as a contemptible piece of scum shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you come to the altar and remember that your brother has anything against you, do this. First, leave there your offering. Go and be reconciled to your brother and come again and make your offering. Agree quickly with your accuser while you're on the way, lest you go to court and the judge turn you over to the prisoners. And the prisoners put you in prison. I'm telling you, you will never get out until you have first paid off everything. Scribes and Pharisees felt that they were righteous simply because they didn't murder their brother, but they left the door wide open for all sorts of angry and contemptuous non-physical torture and character assassination. Jesus contends what is perfectly righteous, not perfectly righteous, until their basic instinct is to so value harmony with their brother that they literally, literally forsake all social propriety in order to restore peace with their brother. That's like a night and day difference in the definition of righteousness. He goes on, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Therefore, if your right eye causes you to offend, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter heaven with a single eye than go to hell with both. And if your right hand causes you to offend, chop it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter heaven lame than it is to go to hell with two hands. The scribes and the Pharisees thought that they were righteous as long as they didn't actually commit the illicit sexual act. Jesus contends that one is not perfectly righteous towards his sister until he has dealt so definitively with the corrupting passions that he has ceased to imagine her to be merely a, or even primarily, a sexual object. And rather, now sees her as she is, a co-regent with him over the world that God has given them both. And he extends that one a little bit farther. You've heard that it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Scribes and Pharisees concluded that as long as they had an acceptable reason for divorcing their wife, and as long as they followed all the correct procedures, well, a man could throw his wife to society's curbside and move on with his own life. Jesus is having none of that. I've got to find my right place here. Sorry. All right, well, well it's probably back in the printer. Sorry about that. Jesus is having none of that. He said, to him, the idea is repulsive. His righteous response is to beg the question of how one could even imagine putting his wife in that awful position, 
how one could even be considered righteous for doing so. And, and even worse, if this guy is discarding his wife so that he can somehow justify his legal sexual activity with somebody else, Jesus is saying, you just don't get it. That's not right. He continues, you've heard that it was said, you shall not fair swear falsely, but, I, or, or, but you shall keep your oaths before God. But I say to you, don't swear at all. Neither by heaven, because it's the throne of God, nor by the earth, because it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. And don't swear by your own head. You don't even have the power to make one hair white or black. Rather, let your yes be yes and your no be no. I mean, the scribes and Pharisees, they had parsed and sliced this out real finely and figured that as long as they were making an oath by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by their own head, and if something happened to come past that they couldn't keep their oath, well, it's okay because at least I didn't make the oath by God and I didn't bring him into the equation. And Jesus just exposes that silliness for what it is, the pompous virtue signaling and manipulative tricks and ploys we play to get others to trust us when the very fact that we have to resort to an oath at all is proof that we're fundamentally untrustworthy. He goes on, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, don't resist the evil one. If somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the left. If somebody takes you to court and sues you and takes your cloak, give him your shirt also. If somebody compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to those who ask you and do not refuse those who would borrow from you. See, the scribes and Pharisees, they took great satisfaction in extracting the commensurate punishment from those deemed guilty. They imagined themselves to be these pillars of the legal system. Wrongs must be made right by force, by violence, if necessary. And Jesus makes it clear that when people operate from this payback kind of model of righteousness, the only possible outcome is a society afflicted by blindness and toothlessness. He contends that perfect righteousness sees and formulates a more healing response when other people fail, or when other people are just obnoxious. And, and lastly, he gets to where we read today. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your enemies, or excuse me, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, for your Father in heaven causes his Son, his Son, to shine on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, how is that any different from the tax collectors? And if you greet those only who greet you, what more are you doing than the Gentiles? Therefore, if you understand what he's saying, therefore, the only possible outcome is what he says. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay, so, so, so there's the elephant, all right? The big picture. That's why we're here where we are right now. At this place. But of course, the, the natural question then is, okay, so 
whew, that's heavy duty. What does that mean for me? What, is, what does that mean for us? Well, I think it means at least two things. It, it means, number one, that Jesus is inviting us right here to be someone different than we normally are. To be someone different than we normally are. It's notable in this passage that we read and are thinking about that Jesus doesn't say, do things perfectly as your Father in heaven does things perfectly. Nor does he say, do perfect things as your Father in heaven does. That's where we always go, though, when we think of this word perfection. Perfection comes into the conversation and bam, it's immediately with us, a performance thing. The athlete has the perfect game when he or she is able to nail every skill every time and bam, get a 10 from the judges or get a home run or score a touchdown or whatever the sports objective might be. The musician who hits every note right at the right time with exactly the right uh, intensity performs a song with perfection. And the audience is moved. The artist who puts together all of the pieces into the exact alignment with the laws of beauty and evokes from the audience, oh my goodness, has completed a perfect work of art. The underlying theme in all of this is that perfection is a performance thing. We always start with performance when we think of perfection. I just need you to notice that's not where Jesus starts. Jesus doesn't start with performance when he's talking about perfection. He starts with person. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. There is one being in the universe who merits the title perfect. Only one. Only one. And he is perfect not just because everything he does is perfect. I mean, it is, but there's something in back of that. He is perfect because of who he is. I mean, he is this massive and amazing father. He is able at every second and every heartbeat of our existence to see and calculate and formulate the trillions of different things that could and are actually happening in a universe like this and to govern it in exactly the right way so that it always does what he wants it to do. Folks, we are nothing close to perfect. The best we can hope for is a single performance where one time, man, I nailed it. But the rest of our lives, we fall way short of nailing it. Perfection is not a performance thing. It's a person's thing. Our Father in heaven is perfect And his perfection is mostly completely defined by who he is. And what he does just naturally flows from who he is. It's first about his being, his person. And only then about his doing, his actions. And notice how Jesus plays this out. Look at how his actions look. When we understand that our Father in heaven is perfect, Jesus says, and look how this perfection plays out. He allows his son to rise on both the just and the unjust. He sends rain on both the evil and the good. In both cases, we have to be honest, these gifts are foundational to life on this planet. I mean, without either sunshine or water, life on this planet would simply cease to be. 
In both cases, these gifts are bestowed with a reckless and promiscuous generosity. I mean, especially here in Florida. Man, the sunshine is just amazing down here. And it doesn't matter whether you're evil or good, just or unjust. It doesn't matter. It rises just as completely on all of us. In both cases, these gifts produce a long string of good fruits and consequences to those who receive them, whether they are worthy of receiving them or not. Why? Why does he do it? It's because of who he is. He's perfect in who he is. And the expression of that perfection is generous, life-giving provision to all creatures without regard to their merit or their response. In other words, when God's perfection goes on display, it looks a lot like what we call love. And as Jesus gets to this point in the sermon where he's intentionally contradicting this kind of mafia-level righteousness the scribes and Pharisees subscribe to, he invites us to become lovers like God is, as opposed to labelers like the scribes and Pharisees were. See how he distinguishes this? He said there, there are two ways of dealing with your neighbor. It's the way of the father and his sons and daughters, and it's the way of the tax collectors and the Gentiles. The, the way of the tax collectors and the Gentiles, well, this is how they do it. They love and they greet those who are on their side or who they can get an advantage from. Others who are not in that inner circle are at best simply invisible. At worst, they become villains to be exterminated. That's not the way it is. Not the sons and daughters of the father. The sons and daughters of the father, they simply love their neighbor, whoever that may be, even when their neighbor happens to be going through an enemy phase. This is the kind of people Jesus is inviting us to become. People like our father in heaven. So what does it mean for us? Well, first of all, it means this. Jesus is inviting us to become different people than we normally are. But there's a second component to it as well. He's calling us to see others differently than we normally do. I mean, there are two really important components to this call. And the first is basic. The second expands on it. The first is simply this. We've got to train ourselves to see other people, to see them. Isn't this one of the most beautiful aspects of Jesus' life and ministry? I mean, for the 30-some years of his life, he wandered through a world with creatures like us noticing us, seeing us. And when you read the accounts in the Gospels, the people who were seen by Jesus knew that they had been noticed. They had been valued. They had ceased to be invisible. And when they finally realized, oh my gosh, the God of the universe has seen me, it was almost overwhelming to the point of crushing them. But that's the point. Jesus saw people. The brand of righteousness practiced by the scribes and Pharisees had them vandalizing people behind labels like tax collector or sinner. All the while they were doing that, Jesus was going from house to house, 
having dinner with tax collectors and sinners. The, the, the beautiful irony, the exquisite irony of this story is that the Pharisees' contemptuous accusation about Jesus, well, he's nothing but a friend of publicans and sinners. Well, of course he was. Who else was there? Who else was there for him to be friends with? And we miss the fact that God in flesh was a friend to people like us. He went out of his way to notice those that society pushed aside, the socially awkward, the chronically ill, the permanently disabled, the foreigner. They were all shoved to the outskirts and the edges of society. And it was them that were sitting on the hillside at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount to whom Jesus pronounced, you, you are the blessed ones. You get it because you have left everything to come to me. And that's all that matters. Scribes and Pharisees, huh? they just couldn't see that. It's because they couldn't see people. They couldn't see people. Multiple times we read in the Gospels that Jesus saw someone in a dreadful situation. And there's this beautiful little phrase, and he was moved with compassion. Something happened inside of him when he saw people. So much so that the God of the universe stepped into their desperate situation and at least stayed near. At best, did something about it and changed it. He made space for people in his life. He saw them. And I'm suggesting that this call to see people differently than we normally do is at least that. First of all, a call to see people. But I think secondly, it's a call to see people differently. Differently than we normally do. This perfect righteousness that far exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees takes a fundamentally different view of people than did the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. In the way of the scribes and the Pharisees, and we, okay, let's be honest, as I said, we're more like them than we are like Jesus right now, generally speaking, for the most part. The way we normally see people is that some are in. Everyone else is out. And in thinking like this, we always imagine ourselves to, well, basically be in. And we structure our whole life around, how do I stay in? Am I still in? What must I do to keep others out? Because after all, I've got to maintain my inness and my purity and everything else. In this particular way of viewing people, we kind of view them as them. We force ourselves to group and maintain and manage our distinctiveness. We can't just let anyone in. Gosh darn it, the whole neighborhood will go down the drain if we do. Do you not see that this is at its core an enemy-making formula? We make enemies. They may or may not be enemies. We make them when we see people this way. And my brothers and sisters, this is the normal way of seeing people. I'm suggesting that Jesus is calling us to see people differently. Okay? As such, when we see people this way, we become arbiters of other people's intrinsic value. Our neighbor who is like us 
looks like us, acts like us, is in our in crowd, they become more valuable than them who are not like us. Under the burden of this thinking, we become over-obligated to our own kind because we must by all means avoid being shut out by the in-group of which we're almost always a part. And it's funny, we can rationalize being terribly undercommitted to those we've labeled them or other or outsider or enemy. With very little effort from this point on, honestly, folks, we can justify and inflict awful violence towards these others. All the foul mistreatment of human beings propagated under the mafia-like righteousness Jesus has just described in the six illustrations flows rather naturally from us because that's who we are. That's who we are. We are fundamentally labelers, just like the tax collectors, just like the Gentiles. We do nothing different normally. Jesus is calling us to be lovers like his Father in heaven. In sharp contrast, then, the way of the sons and daughters of the Father comes to see that all of us are out. All of us are outsiders. But the Father has welcomed us in. And when you have that mindset, oh my gosh, suddenly you start to think, and how can I help everybody to understand that we're all outsiders? And the Father has welcomed us in. I have got to tell this good news. All the sons and daughters of God came to be sons and daughters out of an enemy phase of their lives. None of us were God's friends before he befriended us. The Bible is crystal clear on this point. There is no ambiguity about this. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, And you, well, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, who is rich in mercy, for the great love with which he loved us, even when... We were dead in trespasses and sins. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you were saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants and the promises, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ, you who were once alienated have been brought near. He has made peace. He has broken down the wall of partition. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, that he might reconcile us both in God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
You get it? That's all of us, folks. There's nobody in this, nobody in this room, nobody in this city, nobody in this world who has not at one point in their life been an enemy of God. See, the sons and daughters of God get that. They internalize it. They understand it. And they realize the only good thing that has happened in their life is that the grace of God has shown into their souls and brought them to life. And even more, made them alive and united them with Christ and elevated them to this lofty position. And that cannot result in some kind of arrogant exclusiveness. It can only result in the kind of nature that God has given us, which this reckless, generous love that gives and gives and gives without regard to the labels of enemy. Sons and daughters of God live under the profound weight and reality of this glory that defines reality. Just beyond our last breath. I'm sure you realize it. I mean, just past that place where you and I draw our last breath, bam, there is this glory we can't even imagine. It would overwhelm us if we caught a glimpse of it. Just beyond our last breath, we step into this. And that is where we live forever. That's the way it is for everybody, folks. That's the possibility that Jesus Christ has made for everybody. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. And this is probably one of the most profound expressions of this reality I've ever read. He said, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, or else, a horror, a corruption such as you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. He goes on all day long. We are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is, the light of these, it is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations... These are mortal. And their life, as to ours, is the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, who we work with, who we marry, who we snub, who we exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. See, the sons and daughters of God, they get this. They are becoming people who no longer have the ability to see them or enemy any longer. They can't tolerate in their hearts that awful bile of hatred that clings to the label of enemy. They see others as the scripture and Lewis describes them. And they labor to help these neighbors who may be going through an enemy phase right now to become something better than the misrepresentations of image bearers that they currently are. At the very least, 
They work hard to dispense with the category of enemy as their first instinctive label when they run into somebody else. They work to see everybody as neighbor, even though the enemy phase of that neighbor right now is just, just troubling. And it might be also synonymous with uh, toddler, as surely as it could be synonymous with terrorist or teenager. As Lewis puts it, it makes no difference. Toddler, terrorist, teenager, anybody else, makes no difference. These are immortals we're dealing with, whom we joke with, whom we work with, whom we marry, who we snub, who we exploit. See, these sons and daughters of God, they work hard to see that their first responsibility and their highest privilege is to love their neighbor. All right, well, how do we do that then? How do we do that? Remember, Jesus is not expecting us merely to philosophize about his words. He's expecting us to do that. And here's the good news. The answer is really very straightforward, and there's only one answer to the question, and that is this. Focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. We don't know how to do this. You are not looking at somebody up here who knows how to do this. If I were to launch into Pat's little personal application session of how to do this, I would immediately put myself in the category of those who relax the commandments of God. Because I am just not able to do this. Jesus is. The only answer to this question, how do we do this, is focus on Jesus. And I, and I love how Paul unpacks this idea of focusing on Jesus and the way of learning how to love your neighbor. In Philippians 2, you know this passage. Listen to what he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only in his own interest, but also in the interests of others. What's the basis for this charge? Here it is. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Get this. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but rather emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He was born like a helpless little baby. Get that for a second. The creator of the universe intentionally puts himself in a position where he must be taken care of by somebody else or he will perish. It's amazing to think about. Taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and then, as if that wasn't enough, being found in the form of a man, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Not just any death, but even death on a cross. See, when we focus on Jesus, or as Paul puts it, when we have this mind among us that we have in Christ Jesus, well, a couple of things begin to happen to us. We find ourselves growing in love with Jesus, which is another way of saying we're born again. If in the honest inner conversations of your soul, you're finding yourself saying things like, man, I, I, 
I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Or, this is hard, but I trust him. I trust him. He's, I just trust him. Whatever may come. Or, truth be told, I'd rather be with Jesus, literally, than anywhere else. I'm telling you this, when you hear yourself talking like that in the honest place of your soul, take heart, my brother and sister. That's what it means to be born again. You're saying those things because the Spirit of God has moved into your life and He is testifying with your spirit that you are a son and a daughter of God. How does that happen? The only way it happens is by focusing on Jesus. You and I do not know how to do this, but He does. Not only that, but we start to become more like Him. Here's the truth about us human beings. We become like those we love, don't we? You identify who your hero is, and I can tell you pretty much who you're going to be like. I can tell you the values that you're going to hold, the practices you're going to follow. We become like those we love. And the more we love someone, the more we become like them. And the more we become like them, the more we start to do what they do. <laughs> Duh. So when you sense yourself starting to lower your defenses and share what's really going on in your heart and your life with others, you know what's happening? You're becoming more like Jesus. That's what he did. That's what he did. And when you do that, it's harder for that person with whom you've just shared to be an enemy with you any longer. It's just hard. When you've opened yourself up to somebody else, it's just hard to hold on to that enemy distinction. When you notice yourself noticing people, especially noticing people who are acting like enemies, and you feel your heart drawn to pray for them, take heart, my brothers and sisters. You are becoming more like Jesus. Don't you remember as he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when you and I find ourselves doing that, oh my goodness, however small that step may be for us, we're becoming more like Jesus. And I tell you, it's harder for you to call them enemy when you have earnestly, honestly prayed for them and their welfare. You just can't do it. When you allow yourself to wade into the messy and awkward junk of another person's life in order to help them bear their burdens, you are becoming more like Jesus. Now, they may growl and snarl at you just like they did at Jesus, but that's okay. You understand. They're just stuck in an enemy phase right now. And they may be treating you less like a neighbor, but that doesn't stop you from treating them like a neighbor and helping them to move past that mess. When you watch yourself completely unexpected, lay your life down for a friend because it's the only thing that makes sense if you're going to rescue them from being the immortal horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare, as Lewis said. When you find yourself laying your life down for somebody else, you're becoming more like Jesus. For he saw the joy 
of leading many former enemies, now sons and daughters, to glory. And so he endured the cross, despising the shame. You see? Do you see how what I'm talking about aligns with what Jesus is saying? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say, love your neighbors. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to shine on the just and the unjust. He sends rain on the evil and on the good. For if you love those who love you, how are you any different from the tax collectors? And if you greet those who greet you, what more have you done than the Gentiles? Therefore, be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the good news is, when we read the rest of the story that Matthew tells us about Jesus, the King, we learn that Jesus went out from there, and he made possible what was necessary for us to be perfectly righteous. So that later on, Paul could write, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do in sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he made it possible for the righteous requirements of the law to be fulfilled in us, who no longer walk according to the flesh, that mafia-like righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, but who walk according to the Spirit, like sons and daughters of God. And those who walk according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And you have to know this, the thing that is central to the mind of the Spirit is Jesus. As we set our minds on Jesus, we become more like Him. From grace to grace, from glory to glory. We don't know how to do it, but Jesus does. And He does it. A perfect righteousness, like the Father's, is ours in Christ. And focusing on Jesus is how we step into that righteousness and become the sons and daughters of God. Let's pray.